I'm going to ask you to take your Bible, turn to the book of Job this morning. Job chapter 3, the book of Job is just before the book of Psalms. That makes it easy to find, the 42 chapters of the book of Job. Is there anyone here this morning who has never, ever been depressed? A Christian speaker once asked that particular question, over a long period of time asked that question of 100,000 people. 100,000 people and not a single one of them ever raised their hand. And I would suppose you would not raise your hand this morning if I asked that question of you. See, depression is the common cold of emotional disorders. There's not a person in our world who has not suffered from it from time to time. None of us is immune to it. Depression affects us all. Rich, poor, black, white, red, yellow, Christian, non-Christian, every single one of us. Depression impacts us from time to time. And history is literally littered with people who have battled depression. Hippocrates described a state of mind 2,400 years ago that he called melancholy. Winston Churchill, the distinguished British statesman who led Great Britain during some of the most perilous years of her history, said he suffered personally from a desperate dragon of depression he feared would slay him. And even the greatest preacher in the English language... Charles Spurgeon suffered from depression. He called them his fainting spells. His fainting spells. He said this about them. I am the subject of depressions of spirit so fearful that I hope none of you ever get to such extremes of wretchedness as I go to. And now that I've cheered you up, let's move on. Let me say this. I believe there are particular times in people's life where they're more subject to depression than other times. I know for me... The time in my life that I was most subject to depression was actually in my late teenage years, in my early 20s. I think it's a fairly common thing. I think people are changing still a lot hormonally during those years. And that being the case, of course, it can cause some emotional or chemical imbalances there. It can cause depression. But the truth is we can struggle with depression at any time in our lives. I'll never forget that night back in 2007. The church was doing really well. We were in the midst of building our new children's building. The parking lot was being worked on at that time. And uh, it was after dark and I was out kind of walking around looking at what they had done that day and went up to a neighbor's house that had been a member, no longer a member, but had been a member of our church. And we talked for a few moments. I knew that conversation might be a little tense. And we talked for a few moments. And and that individual just said some very negative things about me and about our church. And I walked away from there kind of going into a tailspin of depression. I don't know why, but I really let it get to me. And I spent the rest of that evening, for the next several hours, I spent that evening walking around Barnesville. And I finally ended up in Greenwood Cemetery. You know, there ain't nothing better than a cemetery to lift your spirits. Don't say that aloud. I don't think I was supposed to be in there at night. But anyway... You know, the truth is, any of us can get depressed at any time if the right things all come together. Or perhaps I should say the wrong things all come together. This morning, of course, we need to know that we're not alone. Even biblical characters suffered with depression. And this morning, in this third message on when bad things happen to God's people, we're going to look at three biblical characters who faced depression. Job, Jeremiah, and Elijah. Now, all three of those biblical characters had what I call situational depression. In other words, their depression was brought on by a negative situation in which they found themselves. This morning, I'm not going to be talking about clinical depression. 
Clinical depression is a chronic problem that is often the result of a chemical imbalance in the brain. For situational depression, you need a good, encouraging, upstanding sermon to remind you to remember God's perspective on life. And you need a few other things as well. (laughs) Maybe that'll help. For chronic depression, what we call clinical depression, you need to see a doctor. You need to go see a doctor. Because what's going on inside you is probably not something that can be encouraged out of you. You probably need to go see a doctor. Having said that, here's what I want you to see today. We can defeat depression if we respond to it according to good biblical models. We can defeat depression if we respond to it according to good biblical models. First, we look at Job. And Job teaches us to keep on talking to God and He will eventually answer us. Keep on talking to God and He will eventually answer us. We've looked at the biblical character of Job during our first two messages in this new series. And so you're fairly well acquainted with him by now. He's a good man with a strong character and a deep faith in God. When God allows Satan to test Job's faith through the loss of his fortune, his family, and his health, Job responds with incredible patience and triumphant endurance. Nobody could have done better than Job did. At least not the first few days. But he's like all the rest of us. He's not super Job. He's just a human being. Like all the rest of us. And as the days turn into weeks after he has experienced those disasters in his life, he begins to slide into a deep pit of depression. And then add to that, add to that those three fellows who came to visit him. You remember them. They come to visit him and they're going to encourage him, right? And the way they're going to encourage him is talk to him about all the bad things, all the wicked things, all the evil things he must have, been, he must have done in order to be in the shape that he's in. Because everybody knows that when we suffer, it's always because we've sinned. Right? And those, those, those encouragers come into his life. I call them sandpaper Christians. They were always rubbing him the wrong way. They come into his life and they are blasting him and telling him that he is suffering so terribly because he has sinned so terribly and put all those things together and you've got the makings of a real battle with depression. Look at his depressed words found in Job chapter 3 verses 1 through 7. It says, after this Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Now that will give you some idea of how negative what he's about to say is going to be. He cursed the day of his birth. He said... May the day of my birth perish, and the night it was said, a boy is born. That day may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine upon it. May darkness and deep shadow claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it. May blackness overwhelm its light. That night may thick darkness seize it. May it not be included among the days of the year, nor be entered in any of the months. May that night be barren. May no shout of joy be heard in it. Dear friend, Job was depressed. And throughout Job chapters 3 through 37, Job keeps talking to God. He keeps talking very much like that. It's important, even if your talk is negative, it's important to keep talking to God. You've got to watch who you talk to when you're depressed, okay? You can talk to some people make you more depressed. Amen? You ever tried that? You don't even, you don't even have any idea how depressed you're going to be when you finish the conversation with them. So you've got to be careful who you talk to when you're depressed because some people can make you more depressed. As a matter of fact, what they'll do is they say, you think you got it bad, listen to what I've been going through. Those are not the people you want to talk to when you're depressed, okay? You want to talk to God. You want to talk to God. And you want to let God talk to you. You say, Pastor, how does God talk to me? He talks to you through His Word. He talks to you through His Word, through the Bible. 
Read Scripture. Talk to God. It's okay like Job did. It's okay to complain. It's okay to complain because your goal is to come out the other side. But you've got to talk to God. Sometimes Job is crying from grief. Sometimes he's shouting in anger. Sometimes he's mumbling in pain. But don't miss out on the fact that Job kept talking to God. You've got to keep talking to God. And because Job kept talking to God, finally in Job chapters 38 through 42, God speaks to Job out of the whirlwind. But God doesn't answer all Job's questions. He doesn't respond to his his accusations and objections. Instead, as theologian Frederick Buchner wrote, God explodes. He asks Job who he thinks he is anyway. He says that to try to explain the kind of things Job wants explained would be like trying to explain Einstein to a little neck clam. God doesn't reveal his grand design. He simply reveals himself. Listen to God's revelation of himself to Job. After all that conversation, after all the words Job has said, after all the talking Job has done, listen to what God says. Verse uh, 1, beginning with verse 1, chapter 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man and I will question you and you will answer me. You've been questioning me. Now I'm going to question you. And you answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked out its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its settings or footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Who shut up the sea behind its doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness. When I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place. When I said, this far you may come and no farther. Here is where your proud waves must halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? Job is receiving not the answers to his questions, but in the midst of all that talking, there's a glorious display of God's power and wisdom. And don't miss my point, Job keeps talking, and that's why God answers him. And you need to keep talking, dear friend. Remember, if you're depressed, keep talking to God, and He will answer you too. And then secondly, our second model is Jeremiah. Jeremiah teaches us to persevere and believe that we will ultimately be victorious. Jeremiah teaches us to persevere and believe that we will ultimately be victorious. Jeremiah was the son of Hilkiah, one of the country priests of Anathoth, about three or four miles from Jerusalem. His father served at the temple in Jerusalem on a rotation basis with the other priests. So from his earliest days, Jeremiah saw both the good and the bad of the goings-on in Jerusalem. Jeremiah is known in the Old Testament as the weeping prophet. On the screen there is the... Slide, there we go, Jeremiah weeping over the burning of Jerusalem, the painting by Rembrandt, painted it in 1630. Uh, He pictures, of course, Jeremiah, Jeremiah there, the aged prophet, weeping over the Jerusalem, the burning of Jerusalem. As true to his prophetic word, the Babylonians burned Jerusalem in 587 B.C. But for many years before that, it was Jeremiah's difficult duty to proclaim not only that Judah needed to repent, but if they did not repent, they would see the judgment of God. The Babylonians would destroy Jerusalem and its temple, and the people would be carried away into exile. Of course, Jeremiah's message was not popular with the religious establishment in Jerusalem, and that can be depressing. When people don't pay any attention to what you say, or they don't value what you say, that can be depressing. I remember in our second church, uh, better than 25 years ago now, early on we had a, a fellow named 
Chuck Kelly come and speak for us. Chuck Kelly was a friend of Suzanne and mine. Uh, he was an evangelist. He was a, a former professional football player, big guy. Went to play golf with him one day. Swung a golf club just like he swung a baseball bat, you know. A lot of power in him. He came to preach for us, preached a revival for us. After the first couple of days of revival, and like I said, he was special to Suzanne and myself because he was instrumental in getting us into our first church. And so he was special to us. And after the first couple of days of revival, our people had responded real well. Things were going really nicely. And I was sitting downstairs in our family room one morning when he came down the stairs, took one look at me and said, what's wrong? I said, well, Chuck, I just don't understand it. I said, here I have been preaching my heart out for the last year and a half to these folks, and you come in 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 two days and two nights, and all of a sudden you get a better response in two nights than I've gotten in a year and a half. I just don't understand it. And he looked at me and smiled. And he said, Garth, they'll love me for a week, but if I was to stay here two weeks, they'd finally figure out that I'm not preaching to that neighbor they don't like. I'm preaching to them. And they would run me out of town. You see, Garth, everybody wants to preach like a Jeremiah, but nobody wants to be treated like a Jeremiah. And he was right. Jeremiah's mistreatment went beyond the rejection of his message. He actually faced physical suffering because of the truth that he preached. And in our text for this morning, Jeremiah chapter 20, Pasher, the official in charge of the temple of the Lord, had Jeremiah the prophet beaten and put in the stocks at the upper gate of Benjamin at the Lord's temple. But that didn't stop Jeremiah from proclaiming the judgment of God. The very next day he was right back at it again, even telling Pasher that he would go into captivity from Jerusalem. Yet Jeremiah was only human like all the rest of us. And all of that rejection, all of that persecution was bound to lead him to some bouts with depression. And we see one of them in chapter 20, beginning with verse 7. Jeremiah says, Lord, you deceived me. And I was deceived. You overpowered me and you prevailed. I am ridiculed all day long. Everyone mocks me. Whenever I speak, I cry out proclaiming violence and destruction. So the word of the Lord has brought me insult and reproach all day long. But if I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, his word is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones, and I'm weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot hold it in. I hear many whispering terror on every side. Report him. Report him. All my friends are waiting for me to slip, saying, Perhaps he'll be deceived, then we will prevail over him and take our revenge on him. But the Lord is with me like a mighty warrior. So my persecutors will stumble and not prevail. They will fail and be thoroughly disgraced. Their dishonor will never be forgotten. O Lord Almighty, you who examine the righteous and probe the heart and mind, let me see your vengeance upon them, for to you I have committed my cause. I want you to notice two things about Jeremiah working through his depression. First, Though the word of God had brought him insult and reproach all day long, he had a conviction deep in his bones that he must proclaim the message that God had given him. We see that in verse 9. But if I say I will not mention his word or speak any more in his name, his word is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones, and I'm weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot hold it in. Like the Apostle Paul who said, Woe is me if I preach not the gospel of Christ. So Jeremiah had a deep inner burning burning to proclaim God's message to his generation. And that brings me to a principle. We can persevere in depression because God's message burns deeply within our hearts. We can persevere in our depression because God's message, his gospel, burns deeply within our hearts. And it needs a point of escape. We need to share it with others. We can't get away from it. 
It's the most important thing about our lives. And we need to share the gospel of Christ that burns deeply within our hearts. The second thing I want you to notice about how Jeremiah worked through his depression is found in verse 11, where Jeremiah says, But the Lord is with me like a mighty warrior, so my persecutors will stumble and not prevail. Jeremiah knew that he was on the side of the one who would be victorious. I've always loved the story of the seminary students who were at their seminary gym. They were there on a regular basis, several nights every week. And the custodian was responsible for locking up, and they always wanted to play later than they should. They'd always made his going home later than it should have been. And one particular night, they were playing their basketball game. They played several nights every week. And one of them looked over to the custodian. He was sitting in a folding chair on the side of the court, reading his Bible. And so one of the seminary students was a little bit cocky. You know, there ain't nobody in the world cockier than seminary students. Believe me. I've known them, and I was one, okay? So, nobody in the world cockier. One of those cocky seminary students walks over to him and says, What are you reading? He said, I'm reading the book of Revelation. Seminary students say, Are you kidding me? Some of the greatest theological minds that have ever thought have not understood the book of Revelation. Are you telling me that somehow you understand the book of Revelation? The custodian said, Yes, I do. Well, then what does it mean? And the custodian said, It means that God is going to win. And that's what it means. I mean, beyond all the trappings of images and and, and dates and things of that nature, the book of Revelation basically means that God is going to win. And if you're on God's team, you're going to win too, dear friend. And that's one of the reasons you can come out of depression. It's because you know that you're ultimately going to win. You don't have to stay in the pit. God's going to raise you out of the pit. Amen? And because of that, you don't have to stay depressed. Then thirdly, there's Elijah. Elijah teaches us to retreat to a quiet place and prepare for a new commission from God. He teaches us to retreat to a quiet place and prepare for a new commission from God. 1 Kings chapter 18 narrates Elijah's great contest with the prophets of Baal at the top of Mount Carmel. And in that contest, of course, Elijah the prophet uh, squared off Deeply outnumbered, 450 to 1. Elijah squares off against the prophets of Baal and he says, I've got an idea. Why don't we have a contest? He said, we'll each have sacrifices. You have a sacrifice to Baal, I have a sacrifice to the God of Israel. You take your sacrifice, your sacrificial animal, put it on the stones of the altar and the wood of the altar up underneath that. Then you call on your God and we'll see if he answers you. And then I'll do the same thing. It'll take me a little bit longer. There are 450 of you and only one of me. Take me a little bit longer, but I'll take my sacrificial animal, put it on the stones of the altar on top of the wood, and I'll call on my God and we'll see if he answers by fire. And so the prophets of Baal spoke and prayed and danced and cut themselves for hour after hour, and their God never answered by fire. And then Elijah simply shares one basic prayer, and he says, Dear God, please turn the hearts of your people back to yourself, and the fire of heaven fell. And the sacrifice was consumed on the altar and the wood. And it burned the very stones of the altar itself and licked up the water around the trench. I thought that was a nice touch. Licked up the water around the trench. And of course, the people of Israel fell on their knees, worshipped Jehovah as the God of Israel. Then the biblical death sentence of Deuteronomy was pronounced and they killed the prophets of Baal for being false prophets. Great day for Elijah. Memorable day for him. His highest day. 
Greatest moment of his life. Mountaintop experience. That's 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 19. The wicked queen Jezebel discovers that her prophets have been killed and sends a message to Elijah and says, May the Lord do so to me. That means, May the Lord do to me what you did to them. And more also, if I don't make your life like theirs by the end of today. And Elijah runs for his life. He runs for his life all because one lone, wily, wicked woman threatens his life. It reminds me of the story of the frog farm. The story is told of a frog farm, just a nice little pond a fellow had on his property and Seemed to have hundreds and hundreds of frogs out there croaking every night. Invited a fellow to come over and enjoy that melodic music. I mean, if you like that kind of thing, you know. Enjoy that melodic music from the frog pond, all those frogs croaking. Friend came over, just delighted by it. Evidently, he was a country boy and he liked that kind of a sound. He, he, in fact, he loved that kind of sound. He decided he wanted to buy that frog farm. And so he makes a fellow a really good price and he sells him his frog farm. He goes out there several nights in a row. He continues to enjoy the music of the frogs croaking in the pond. Finally, one day he says, you know, I, if I'm smart, I, I'll find a way to keep these frogs going around the cycle. If I can sell some off to the local restaurants and then get some more frogs and raise them up in this pond, I'll have a good business going. So he decided to drain his pond. And you know what he found? When he drained his pond, he found out that all that croaking noise had been made by one old bullfrog. You know that's how it is in life. Oftentimes in life, you will become depressed because somebody has said something that is insulting to you, something that's discouraging to you, something that's depressing to you. And dear friend, they're just an old bullfrog. You know, you just need to envision them in that, in that way in your mind. My mother-in-law, my, my father-in-law had a, had a job as one of the vice presidents of a steel company in Gadsden, Alabama. And he was one of the superintendents. And every, every day at lunch, the superintendents would be brought before the general manager of the plant. And every day he picked somebody in that lunch meeting to insult and to chew out in front of everybody else. I mean, they, they hated going to lunch because they knew it was going to be one of them. And you know what my mother-in-law told my father-in-law? She said, when he starts chewing on you, you just picture him in a pink tutu. <laughs> You'll be all right. You picture him that way. There's just no bullfrog. Just no bullfrog croaking. First Kings chapter 19, verses 4 through 10. Take a look there with me, if you will. We read this story. We read the story of Elijah. We're going to get to it in a minute. First Kings chapter 19, beginning with verse 4, says the following, While Elijah went a day's journey into the desert, he came to a broom tree and sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. And he looked around, and there by his head was a cake of baked bread over hot coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and then lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. 
So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him in that cave, What are you doing, Elijah? And he replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. And I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Notice, if you will, that's depression. He was exhausted. Do you know that you can become depressed simply because of physical exhaustion? It certainly can happen to you. It can happen to me. It can happen to any of us. But beyond that, Elijah had just come off the highest moment of his life. Now, I don't know why it is, but coming off that moment with the prophets of Baal at the top of Mount Carmel, he wins a great victory in that contest, and yet sometimes, for some reason, people go into their deepest depressions in the aftermath of some mountaintop moment in their lives. And we see that happening to Elijah here. But Elijah's depression has been caused by more than just physical exhaustion or the descent from a mountaintop experience. He believes that he's the only one left on earth that is serving the faithful God of Israel. He grieves over the, over the way that Israel's, uh, Israel has rejected God's covenant, broken down his altars, and put his prophets to death. And he's ready to die. But God is not done with Elijah yet. And God is not done with you yet either. You may think he has. Satan may have whispered into your ear that he has. But God is not done with you. The Word of God tells us that He will never leave us nor forsake us. He will never be done with us. And that being the case, we can take hope and we can take strength. In 1 Kings chapter 19, beginning with verse 11, it says, The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. And then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. And I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me. And the Lord said to him, Go back the way you came. Go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Also, anoint Jehu as king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat from Abel-Meholah, to succeed you as a prophet. Elijah returned to Mount Horeb. He returned to the mountain of Moses, what's called Jabal Musa, the mountain of God. Mount Sinai, where the Ten Commandments were given to Moses. Elijah went back to the very place where God had given the law that the Israelites now rejected. And Elijah hid in that same cleft of the rock in which Moses has hidden when the Shekinah glory, the blinding holiness of God, passed by him. And there Elijah listened for the voice of God. Notice that the voice of God doesn't always come when and where we expect it to. Elijah expected to hear the voice of God in the fury of the tornado. But he didn't hear it there. Elijah expected to hear the voice of God in the rumbling of an earthquake, but he didn't hear it there. Elijah expected to hear the voice of God in the spectacle of the lightning, but he didn't hear it there. Instead, Elijah heard the voice of God in a whisper, like a gentle rustling of the wind. If you're depressed, you likewise need to go to a place, a place that you've been before a place where you've heard the voice of God before, and then in quietness and meditation, listen for that still, small voice that will speak hope to your heart. 
just like Elijah did. There you'll receive a new commission as Elijah did when God said, Go anoint Hazael as king over Syria, Jehu as king of Israel, and anoint Elisha as the prophet who will continue your legacy. George W. Truitt, one of the most beloved, best-known Baptist preachers, present company accepted, Whoever lived. For 47 years he was the pastor of First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas. And yet, though he had that long, long tenure in Dallas, it could have ended after about three or four years. For there was an accident that took place. George Truett was out hunting with a good buddy of his, police chief of Dallas, A.J. Arnold. They were bird hunting with shotguns. They were crossing a fence row when... George Truett's shotgun accidentally went off and shot the police chief in the leg. It wasn't a bad wound, certainly wasn't a mortal wound. Everybody expected the police chief to recover. But of course, a few days later, all Dallas was shocked to learn that their police chief had died of a coronary thrombosis, a complication of a gunshot wound. George Truett went into a deep personal depression. For days on end, he refused to leave the dismal darkness of his own room. He saw it as a place of silent suffering. He told his wife that he was done with preaching. He would have to leave the ministry. He wasted away from days on end without food or sleep. Finally, on Saturday night, he fell asleep. And just before dawn on Sunday morning, there came to him in his sleep a vision which inspired him to go back into the pulpit and to preach with a newfound fervor and with a conviction that he'd never known before. In that vision which he very seldom ever talked about. In that vision which we really know about only because his son-in-law wrote his biography and told about the vision. In that vision, George Truitt saw Jesus standing by his side and saying to him, Have no fear, you are my man from now on. At the end of that deep depression... George Truett found a new commission which led him to a deeper commitment to Christ that became the secret of his power before people. Psalm 42 verse 5 says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? You might say, Why are you depressed within me? Hope in God and you shall again praise Him. There's the recipe. There's the instructions. Here's how to get out of it. How do you get out of that pit? Hope in God, for you shall again praise Him. As a matter of fact, you wouldn't hurt yourself if you're depressed this morning. You wouldn't hurt yourself to walk out of this place praising God. For there's some way, somehow, that in praising God, it begins to lift you out of the very pit of depression. Depression is a state of mind, isn't it? At least situational depression is a state of mind. Not clinical, but situational. Being a state of mind, it's something that you can climb back out of. You can change your mind, can't you? Sure you can. Sometimes you just need the inspiration, the encouragement, the hope to change your mind. You see, in the end, in the midst of depression, we need hope more than anything else. And Jesus Christ brought hope into this world when He died for our sins and then rose from the dead to bring us the promise of everlasting life. Dear friend, this morning, no matter who you are or what state you are in today, whether you're high as a kite or low as a ground gopher, this morning you can have the hope of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for this day. We pray, Lord, that You would help us as we strive to follow You. Lord, 
Following you is not always easy. There are disappointing things that happen. There are discouraging things that happen. There are depressing things that happen. And yet, Lord, our spirits can rise because we have hope in our hearts. And I pray this day, Lord, if anybody here does not know you, they'll come to know you today. I pray this day, Lord, if anybody here needs to come join this church family, they will. And I pray this day, Lord, if anyone here is depressed, they might find hope in you and begin to rise out of the pit of depression. For I ask it in Christ's name. Amen.